You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. What's up, podcast listeners? I know it's been about a month since I've connected with you guys. been super busy hunting. Shot the biggest buck of my life in Oklahoma. Um, Man, it's been a crazy month, month and a half. Went to Boise City, Oklahoma. Me and my buddy harvested four antelope up there. Our first time doing that. So, sorry for the big lag in shows. We're really, really going to pick up with it um, starting at the beginning of the next year. So, thank you guys for rocking with me and consuming the other episodes while while this lag was happening. But, um, I wish you guys a very, very... Merry Christmas. I hope you guys have a great time hunting or enjoying time with family, uh, celebrating the birth of Christ, whatever um, you guys do to celebrate the holidays. Hope you guys have a good one. Um, This episode is going to be really cool. Um, My first episode was a digital mapping software company. Um, Josh Dalkey from HuntStand was super generous to come on and talk all about the app and kind of some hunting culture things, some uh, explanation of his whitetail season and um, a bunch of other things. So enjoy this episode. You guys have a great holiday. I will catch you guys right around the new year. Okay, cool. So this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Josh Dalkey. He is a. What are, are you the VP of content at Hunt Stand? Is that how you would you would uh, pronounce that? Yeah, I'm the I'm the dude who runs our content, so articles, videos, emails, social, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's my forte, and I've I've been in this game for about ten years now, so I really enjoy it. Sure. So maybe you could give a, a little bit more background into kind of how you got into the outdoor space, what you've done, and kind of how you ended up at Hunt Stand. Sure, I'd love to. And uh, by the way, Christian, thanks for having me on. Of course. Um. So. My career started approximately 10 years ago. At the time, I was actually uh, flipping burgers in a couple of different restaurants, and um, I graduated with a degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and so it was kind of a pipe dream of mine to to do something in the outdoor space and maybe be an outdoor writer, and um, as soon as I graduated from college, that's kind of when the economy went into the tank after 9-11, and so... It was really difficult to get any form of journalism job. Um, Even the entry-level positions like daily reporters at small newspapers were being taken by folks with years of experience. So it was was super rough. So I just continued to flip burgers and um, do what I knew, and that was cooking. Like I said, at a couple different restaurants, and then eventually I just couldn't handle it anymore, and I started uh, to renew my job search for something in the outdoor space, and I came across an open position at a magazine which unfortunately no longer exists, but it was called North American Hunter. And that was the North American Hunting Club. Um, It was one of the biggest hunting organizations in the world for a long time. And uh, the magazine circulation was as such as well. It was a a huge magazine with circulation throughout the U.S. and Canada. And so I worked there for a while, um, helping with the magazine. And also I was the online editor and helped with the social media and, um, publishing industry, as you probably know, and as, as most of the listeners probably know, is, has been struggling for a number of years now. Um, the transition to digital and the, the availability of content online and through social really kind of flipped everything on its ass, frankly. And so the publishing world has been challenging, to say the least, especially in the outdoor space where there's such a limited pool of endemic advertisers. And so... Um, I was fortunate to network while I was at the magazine, and I met a company called Scout Look that had just started. And Scout Look was one of the very first hunting mobile apps that wasn't just a game. It was actually a service. It was uh, mapping and weather and all these cool things that folks could actually use to 
improve their hunting and plan for hunts. And so I met the guys from Scout Look, ended up getting a job with them, left North American. And um, several years later, here we are, and Scout Look merged with Hunt Stand. We were fierce competitors for a number of years. <laughs> and uh, we decided last year, we, we started having some open conversations, and we said, why not join forces and stop beating each other up and um, everybody bring what, what they have to the table for their skills and combine the user communities and the technology and all that and just really start rocking this thing out together. So that's what we did, and um, now we're about officially, I think, three or four months into it. And okay. It's been a, it's been quite a ride. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a that's a very unique journey. I feel like most people don't have something that drastic, uh, but that's really cool, man. So, in terms of hunt stand or um, a SaaS business, digital mapping software, um, things like that, what what could you tell someone um, that doesn't understand these things? What what are the features? What is the the actual software? What does it do? Because I feel like most people or a lot of people have heard about this, but for those that are listening that haven't, um, could you explain to them what it is? Yeah, you're you're completely right. Um, it's surprising, even though um, even now now that the mobile app space in the hunting world has gotten so much bigger, and uh, now we even have some other folks who have come in, and um, we would call competitors at this point. Um, there are millions of people using mobile apps for hunting, but there are still millions who some of them don't even know they exist. And so mm -hmm. you, you hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of education and awareness still that needs to, to go down. And, uh, I guess that's a good thing for our business because it gives us an opportunity to grow. Oh yeah, so, of course. And, and, you know, being on a, on something like this on a podcast is, is really helpful for us to get that word out. So, um, we thank you for letting me come on to represent HuntStand. We also thank the listeners who are taking the time here to tune in and, and hear what we're all about. But to get to that, what we are is, um, I guess the best way to describe it is it's, we give you the ability to digitally scout on your mobile device, no matter where you're at. So my favorite part about using our app as part of my hunting strategy is I can sit there days or weeks or months or even just hours before a hunt and I can sit on my couch and I can go through and I can look at aerial imagery. I can look at the weather forecast. I can look at the wind forecasts. I can look at all these things and, and you get what you give in terms of the information that you plug into our system, but you can sit there and you can plan your hunt. You can visualize your hunt. You can figure out where you're going to set up and you can plan for success before you even have your boots on the ground. And so for me, that's a big deal because I think like a lot of folks who are probably listening to this, we don't get to hunt nearly as much as we might want to, but we're thinking about it. And maybe we're watching videos or reading articles or all these things that feed our passion for that. And to actually be able to almost sit there and start your hunt while you're not even in the field, our, our mobile app gives you the ability to do that. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, so I think it's so interesting kind of how quickly and rapidly this has progressed because I remember I remember like hanging out with my uncle just probably eight, nine, ten years ago and where he's he's like, you know anybody that's got a printer? I'm like, why? He's like, we got to print off these these uh, wildlife management area maps. He's like, we got to start <laughs> circling some crap on here. He's like, I think down in here would look good and then over there looks pretty good. And I'm like, dude, this is, this is like this – is crazy like we'd walk in um walk in an area you know three or four hundred yards like oh this sucks because you know you've got this pixelated black and white image that some dude photocopied and uploaded okay. to the website and man it's just changed so much um even since a few years ago and for me it's been such an efficient efficiency booster and for you so what are some like personal scenarios or how, do, how are you using it personally to to benefit yourself like you said, hunting from hunting from the couch a little bit or planning. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I mean, uh, before I came on board with Scout Look, um, as as an official part of the team, I had a chance to use it for a number of years, and then now that I've been with Hunt Stand, I use it religiously. Now, um, some of your listeners may have used Scout Look in the past. Some of them may have used Hunt Stand. Some of them may have used may have used both. Um, 
But what happened was when, when our companies merged, uh, like I mentioned before, we merged our technologies, our, our teams, and also our user communities. So people who were using ScoutLook were forced to migrate into the HuntStand system. So, you know, we warned people, and eventually one day they, they opened the app for ScoutLook and it said, hey, um, you know, tap here. You're now going to go over to HuntStand. All of your information will be available there. Because, frankly, as competitors, we did have a lot of very similar tools, but HuntStand actually had more than us. So those who did come over from ScoutLook to the HuntStand platform gained something by doing so. Um, of course, you know, we, we forced people into it because of the nature of the business move, but I was one of the users of ScoutLook avidly. I mean, all the time. And now I transitioned over to HuntStand just like the rest of the community, and I've been loving it. And some of the examples of the way that I use it, um, I hunt multiple species all year long across most of the country. I, I travel even out of the country. Um, this year I've, I've hunted turkeys. I've hunted antelope, mule deer, whitetails, upland birds, ducks, geese, uh, all sorts of stuff. So... I love being out there just as much as the next guy, but um, for big game especially, it's really great to be able to sit down and look at a hunt area where you intend to go, where you have all your locations saved, your tree stands, your ground blinds, um, any observational data. So if you've seen scrapes or rubs or bedding areas or anything that you use to help put this puzzle together, you can input all of that data into the app. So when you go in there, you're not having to just go off your memory. You're not having to go off handwritten notes or you're not having to go to a separate website or app to look at the weather forecast and, and the wind forecast and to see how the wind is going to blow at those locations. You can go into one spot in our app and you can see all those things at one time. So you can sit there and plot your hunt in advance and you know with confidence exactly how you're going to approach the scenario when you get there. And for me, I'm checking it as much as I can leading up to the hunt, but I'm also checking it literally as if I pull up to a, a parking spot on a piece of public land or you know, in the farmyard at my family's farm or on this lease I have in Wisconsin, I'm checking it from the moment I get there um, because conditions change and you know you might need to make a last last minute decision where you were going to go sit one stand and you realize now something changed where it might not be the best place to be or if you're going to go on a spot and stock type of mission um obviously wind being the biggest factor or um you know maybe the direction that the sun is in the sky when you when you plan for something like that where you're going after a big game animal it's all in the approach and if you screw up the approach Anything else that you had in mind is going to be screwed up after that. So entrance and exit strategies are a big part of how I use the app, just to know that when I go in there, I'm not going to be leaving my scent contamination behind. I'm not going to be spooking game on the way in or the way out, that type of thing. So that's, that's kind of the, the starting point, but uh, a lot of it comes down to how you use it in the field too, like I mentioned before, to save a lot of your observations because that stuff – becomes really hard to keep track of. I mean, if you hunt a bunch of different spots, you might try to rack your brain and think of, okay, where exactly was that turkey roosting last time I was out there? Mm -hmm. What patch of cattails did I flush that pheasant out of? Um, what pond were those ducks flying in in mid-October when all the rest of them were frozen? Maybe because it has a spring in it or something? You can save all that kind of stuff so you don't have to sit there and just try to make guesses based on your memory. I, I don't know about you, but my memory is not what it used to be. Oh yeah. Yeah, no. I think that's a that's a great response for that. Definitely a lot of features and maybe every user doesn't take advantage of every single feature, but the features are there um, based on use case and you know what do you what it, it is what you want to do with the app. So I mean I can think of times like for me, I remember hunting on pizza pieces of public in Oklahoma that are two hundred thousand acres and being thirteen or fourteen and my uncle's like walk down this tree line. I'm like, dude, it's dark. I'm like, I'm like, how am I gonna get down there? He's like, you know, when you find a tree, just turn around and come back. And I, I've done that so many times walking in and 
you know, having the exact tree. Like, I, I, I've hunted this. This is where the deer come out. I need to be in this tree. And then I get all the way up in the tree. I don't know where I'm marked, and I'm 30 yards off, and I'm in the middle of the open, and I have deer come in, and they're busting me. I'm like, damn it. If I knew if I knew with a 40-yard accuracy of where I was supposed to be, I would have been successful this morning. So it's like, it's things like that, walking in and marking the exact tree, like you said, marking the exact pond, um, looking at wind direction and being able to walk in and, and say, I'm going to walk in with the wind in my face. If I hunt here, I've got, I've, I busted deer here. They're, they were bedding right here. And man, it's just all those data points. And like, I can't imagine how people used to do it, right? It's all memory. It's like, oh, you walk down that log road and go about 40 yards in there and go left. But all that <laughs> stuff has changed. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's almost deer hunting is almost down to a science now or, or whatever kind of hunting you're doing. But for me, a lot of stuff has changed. since I started using mapping software, especially getting lost. I don't do that near as much anymore. I'm with you, man. I'm a, I am, um, what's, what's a semi politically correct way to put it. I am navigationally challenged. Um, <laughs> I'm the first to admit it. I get lost really easy. I don't know what it is, but if I'm not, using a device or really paying attention to a map of some sort. Um, I don't know if it's because I have next ridge syndrome where I constantly just have to see what's over the next ridge and over the next ridge. And I don't always necessarily pay attention to how I'm getting there in the first place, but you, you hit, you hit it right there too, with the navigational aspect. Um, the mobile technology has come so far with the GPSs in the average smartphone that everybody has in their hand now. Um, five years ago, even that wasn't the case. Um, you still really had to use your handheld GPS units that were built for that, for reliability. But now the technology has come so far that you don't even need a GPS most of the time because, um, even with, even with an app like HuntStand, um, well, I can foreshadow that, uh, within the next week, we're going to, we're going to finally have our offline mapping capabilities. So you'll be able to cache maps. You'll be able to use it for when you don't have service and um, you'll be able to use it for navigation and all the things that you would normally use it for, but you don't need, you don't need any cell service. So to be able to do that um, and not get lost in the dark, I mean, I've, you, you say that um, kind of in self-deprecation, but I can tell you, dude, I've gotten lost so many times in the dark, even, even today to spots where I've been on ground that's intimate to me. You get there and you know, it's pitch black and you don't necessarily want to turn your flashlight on. And, um, it's easy to second guess yourself when you're disoriented like that. So it's really the biggest thing about using something like this is, is the confidence level. Um, I, I was actually speaking to a guy earlier and I told him that I am really big into trying to visualize my success when I go on any kind of hunt. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to think about like turkey hunting is a great example which I'm, I'm sickeningly obsessed with. I hunt like, like 60 to 70 days in the spring for turkeys and a bunch of different places. And when I go into a spot that I've scouted and, and I, I'm working on a specific bird or a specific group of birds, like I envision exactly how the morning is going to play out. And if I can, I want to be there within sight of that turkey on the limb so I can watch it fly down. I know exactly what tree I'm going to be sitting against. I know exactly how I think he's going to move so that I can intercept him. And I also try to visualize if he doesn't go that way, uh, how can I put myself in a position where if he skirts around me, I can use the terrain to stay on him without having to just let him walk away, that type of stuff. So being able to visualize your success and, and have a really good strategy um, just puts you in a, a lot better spot mentally with your confidence and, uh, especially for all your tree stand hunters out there, there's nothing worse than having to sit there for hours on end on your ass with no confidence. I mean, that's, Oh yeah. It's really hard to do. It's mentally taxing. Yeah, no, I agree. So as far as you talked about it a little bit, your offline features, what's that going to look like when you guys are up live? Uh, I know on other platforms there's, uh, you know, there's low res images, uh, for a big distance or super high res images for maybe a couple miles. What's that going to look like? Cause that's really a, that's really a big feature for someone like like me that wants to do a lot of hunts out west, doesn't want to carry a GPS. I'd rather carry battery packs than a GPS. So <laughs> how, how high res can I get? And uh, is there like a max 
amount of those maps that I can store. Man, I I feel uh, I feel I feel foolish that I don't have that that precise answer for you right now. I personally am am literally as we speak waiting on the test version to hit my inbox mm. uh, so that I can download it and test it on my phone. But I did just get an email yesterday from actually the the founder of HuntStand saying that we are days or the max of about a week away from being able to launch that. But from my understanding, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to download maps of various sizes, so various radiuses, um, depending on how big of an area you want. You you would want, and then also um, based on re resolution, depending on how much space you want to take up on your phone. Because anytime you cache a map like that, you're using the internal memory of your phone or your micro SD card to save that map. So it's not something. Because it's because it's allowing you to operate offline. Obviously, it can't pull it from the cloud or something. So, right. So I wish I had a better answer for you, but I guess uh, I guess you and some other folks who are listening are going to have to just keep your eye on the app and whatnot, and um, you'll know about it shortly after I do because it, it'll, yeah. it'll be live. We'll stay tuned then. So one of the one of the features that I had looked at that I thought was unique to your platform, and you can kind of inform me if I'm wrong, was the ability to see 3D on the platform. Because I haven't, I haven't seen that on another platform yet. Is that a feature you guys have, and, and what, what is it, what's the advantage of having something like that? Yeah, so um, a few months ago, we released the major upgrade to HuntStand called HuntStand Pro. And with HuntStand Pro, you get... A bunch of different things. It's $25 a year, so it's a, it's a quarter of the cost of some of our competitors, and it has more features. So, I mean, that's just, that's just getting down to the brass tacks of it. Um, but you get property information, so property lines and land owner information for all 50 states. You get uh, our public lands layer, some other cool map layers, and then you also get that 3D mapping view which I have used a ton. So for folks who do not currently have the, have the app and are listening to this, the 3D mapping deal, um, I guess to first answer your question, no, I'm not aware of any other hunting mobile app that has 3D view like that. But what it actually looks like is exactly as it sounds. It's, it's 3D view. So you can actually tilt the map with your fingers. You just take your two fingers, you swipe them across the screen, you can tilt the map, and it'll give you a 3D textured rep representation of the landscape. So it's not just your, your tilting of the map and being able to look at a flat representation like you've been able to do for years with Google and some other apps. It, it actually gives you um, that 3D view. So the way we like to describe it, it's almost like you're flying through a property. Uh, at low level in, in like a drone or something. Um, so, you know, you can, you can see the implications of that for Western hunters because there's so much terrain out there and a lot of times drastic terrain, which influences your safety. It influences your strategy. Um, you know, a lot of what you do out there and how you get around is based, based upon how the terrain is going to allow you to do so. But even with Eastern whitetail hunters, uh, I got like I referenced. I have a lease in Wisconsin that I just got this year. Um, actually, going to hunt turkeys there on Friday. But I sit back, I tilt that map, and I surf around the property while I'm sitting here at home. And you can see things that you wouldn't necessarily notice just by looking at the overhead topographic view or, or the satellite view. Um, you can actually see in a lot of places where like trails are coming out of the woods or where there's like a maybe a different break in the timber that you never thought about before or like just different types of edges that would make a lot of sense for you to set up on or just even really subtle changes in the terrain with ditches and minor rolls that, um, you know, a whitetail knows, knows that, that dirt that he's living on better than anybody. It's a blueprint that's permanently sealed in his brain and, and he knows how to use that terrain to sneak around all over the place from point A to point B during daylight hours to make sure nobody's going to see him. So when you can recognize those subtleties by sitting there and just looking at that map on your phone, 
that's a game changer. Um, combine that with like our visual wind mapping that we call Hunt Zone, and it's it's a super powerful tool. No matter where you're hunting or what type of hunting you're doing. Yeah, I can think of the miles right now that this this would have saved me uh, just a few months ago in in Colorado because. You know, it's so easy to look at look at Google Earth and be like, "All right, over this ridge," and then we'll go over this ridge, and you're ma- you're mapping out this long plan of how you're gonna walk and do ten or twelve miles that day. And then if you would have the ability to go 3D and look up and see how those seemingly small uh, ridges are, I-, I have a feeling I would take a, a few different routes. That's a that's a really cool feature, though. I think I could definitely use that even even my whitetail hunting experience. Yeah, for sure, man. And uh. I feel you on the pain of, of making some bad decisions um, out west. About three years ago, I was out there filming a, a mule deer hunt on public land. Well, I had a mule deer and antelope tags in my pocket, and I had uh, one of my friends with me who was also running camera for me at the time. And uh, we still talk about that trip because I've never seen – he's the most easygoing dude you could ever meet. He's from, he's from uh, Kentucky. And, uh, he's just, is, is, is slow talking and easy going as you could, of a guy as you could ever meet. That's the only time I've ever seen him mad because I was leading us around on this new ground and we had to walk out the first night, um, which ended up being a 19 mile day. And the way that I was getting around that property was, was just absolutely stupid. Um, I just, like I said, that next ridge syndrome, I couldn't help myself. I just kept going over the next ridge and over the next ridge. And in hindsight, all I had, there's one, one main spine that ran along the whole property and I should have stayed on top of that damn thing the entire time and just glassed. But instead we burned 19 miles of unnecessary ground and probably spooked the crap out of all sorts of deer and antelope. And, uh, I was none the wiser, but if I would have had this type of mapping and this type of, uh, well, a little bit, a little bit better intelligence that I do now. Um, I would have saved myself a lot of effort and I probably would have, probably would have killed the deer while he was there. I didn't end up killing it until after he had to leave. Mm. Gosh dang. So you talked about your, your buddy a little bit. Um, do you have, you guys have the ability within the app to share, uh, maybe points that you've marked or bedding areas, uh, tree sand locations. Can you guys do that? Definitely. Yeah. You can, uh, you can share, uh, what we call hunt areas with anybody you want selectively. And, um, you can give them the ability to, to have, um, different levels of access to that. But then also, um, kind of a cool, um, just collaborative and and safety feature is, um, you can choose to reveal your location to your friends. So, especially like down South where hunting clubs are a bigger deal and Mm -hmm. guys are coming and going and there's people are sharing stands and stuff like that. Um, this allows you to see where people are in real time. So, you know, if you show up at your hunting club or any other type of property that you share, or maybe you're going out to meet a buddy somewhere who's already out in the field, you can see where they're at on the map, which is really neat. That is really sweet. Oh man, I can see in the back in the background here. You're obviously a, a big whitetail hunter. How how's your whitetail season been uh, this year? It's uh, I'm I'm blessed to say it's been the best whitetail season I've ever had in my life. I got mm-hmm. really lucky this year, and I was uh, I ended up on some some really neat hunts, and um, I was able to take uh, some great deer. Starting in January, actually, I was down in. Um, Louisiana with uh, Primos. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with with those guys or, or the the name Will Primos. But um, I was down in a camp with him and some of his crew at a place they call Cottonmouth, which uh, it's down on the Mississippi Delta. And we were down there in January when there was serious serious flooding going on, um, all from the Mississippi River. And to put it in perspective, when we got to this property. Um, you know, we could drive in relatively normal. There was a little bit of water on the roads, but by the time we left, almost the entire place was underwater. Um, and the, the, the lodge we were staying in was built for that. It was on stilts and it, it, they had succumbed to many floods and made it through them before. But 
um, when we were driving out that last day in the truck, the water was up to our wheel wells and it looked like we were driving across a lake. But uh, it was a really unique experience with the deer because being that there's so much flooding and there, there's uh, some, definitely some controversy related to this, but the deer get concentrated because they don't have a lot of places to go. So where we were at, there were a lot of deer and being late season, they were on a typical bed to food pattern. So they only had so many places to sleep and so many places to eat. And so we were seeing a whole lot of deer, but, um, I was, I was able to shoot a really, really gorgeous buck, mature buck, actually the first evening, but I can tell you, um, across the next couple of days, there's still whitetails. And even though they're, they're pretty desperate, to put it to be honest during those types of conditions it's not like you're just seeing mature bucks pop out of woodwork like most of them are still nocturnal um so we saw some good bucks and everybody everybody ended up shooting mature bucks on that trip but it wasn't like they were just coming from all over the place either so the, there were a lot of deer out there that we were not seeing that that still you know it was in their instincts to just only walk at night um so that was a that was a really neat way to. I don't know if you. I don't know if I started my season, or if oh, I was you ended that season. season you know. So you were, did you did you meet a guy named Lake Pickle when you were on the on that trip? I sure did. Yes. Okay. I've had Lake on the podcast. So I was wondering when you said Cottonmouth, I'd seen some stuff he had videoed down there. So I assumed you guys were in the same same cabin or something like that. Oh yeah, we were we were at the same camp. Those guys were there filming for their show while we were there filming for something else, and um, we shared some some good meals together and some good stories. And um, you know, you you see guys like that, and uh, until you spend some time with them, um, when I say guys like that, I mean folks who are in the industry and, and TV stuff, stuff, and you know that type of thing. Uh, you don't. You never know what kind of people they're going to be. Um, you like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but uh, a lot of folks who, who do that sort of stuff end up kind of getting jaded. And uh, what I can say about that Primos crew, and I, I was a little bit worried going into it. I didn't know what kind of guys they were, but I learned real quickly that they're grade A humans. They're freaking awesome dudes, and they're hardcore hunters, even after all these years. They're not burned out on it by any means. I mean, while we were in camp together, it was all t it was all hunting talk all the time. And when we weren't talking about previous stories, we were pouring over maps and, and thinking about what we were going to do for our next sit, whatever day it happened to be down there. So I can't say enough about those guys. And it's it's uh it's cool that we have a mutual friend. Yeah, that's awesome. So what were you guys filming for down there? Do you guys have some sort of show that you film for YouTube series or what? Um, well, so as the, uh, as the content guy at, at HuntStand, um, we produce a lot of content. So articles and videos and a couple original series that we publish on our website and YouTube. And, um, we try to get it out as many, as many digital platforms as we can. But, uh, we produced, I think in 2018, we probably shot like 150 videos or something like that. And, um, a lot of those are more of your like short film style format where it's it's more about storytelling mm -hmm. um we don't do a lot of just straight like shoot them up type stuff where it's all about the kill and making ducks fall out of the sky and all that like we're, <laughs> we're really big into the storytelling just because um we believe and it's it's our philosophy so i guess to a certain degree we try to push it on the audience but we also believe that a great portion of the audience feels the same way in that um, whether you're watching something, uh, you know, a hunt to be motivated or entertained or educated or whether you're doing it yourself, it's about the experience. And I think you just get a lot more richness out of anything related to hunting when, when you can put it in that light versus just having it be solely about tagging an animal or, or making a kill. So we, we really try to do our best to, to tell stories and make it about the people and the places and the experiences versus just how many, how many animals you can stack up and put in the freezer type of thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. 
So you started out in in January and at Cottonmouth. What what about this? Uh, I guess this season, quote unquote, starting in October or wherever, whenever it starts in Wisconsin or Minnesota. Well, um, in terms of the deer, my season actually started. Uh, if you take Cottonmouth out of the out of the equation, because I guess that was sort of a, a cap to 2018. But my season started in Kansas muzzleloader so that's mid-september which is mm. pretty interesting um it's usually just within days after the after the whitetails have lost their velvet um sometimes you might catch it on the fringe same here like in minnesota and wisconsin during our archery opener in minnesota sometimes you'll catch you'll still catch a few bucks in velvet but typically it's they lose it about the week before which is is kind of a bummer but it is what it is so Kansas, uh, yeah, at that time of year, it's hot, really hot. It was uh, in the 90s every day. But the deer are still in their early season patterns. And, um, you know, I, I say they're in their early season patterns. They're, they're breaking out of their bachelor groups because they lost their velvet. And so they are starting to split up. But you're, you're at that intermediary phase where there's still some bucks hanging together. And there's some that are really just loners, but they're really focused on food and specifically um, any gr- any beans that are left that are still green. And uh, Kansas had a record year, as a lot of places did, for wa- for uh, rainfall this year. I think they were about, I don't know, they were like, I think they were like 100 times above their average or something like that this year. So there was a ton of green vegetation when I was down there. When a lot of times, a lot of parts of Kansas, it can be super arid and stuff is dry. Everything was green. And um, there were still a lot of of bean fields and and food sources that were green. So they weren't really focused on the mass crops yet. So they were showing themselves. Um, They were coming out early enough that you could you could catch them even though it was hotter than hell. And um, I was fortunate to actually catch uh, two bucks coming through a staging area, a classic staging area, one evening. Um, it was, the best explanation I can give is it was, it was like a bunch of native kind of CRP style grass um, surrounded by timber with some ridges that dropped off into valleys. So it was like, it was like your idyllic staging area because they were they were bedding down in the cool bottoms off the edge of this grass, but then they would come up on top. They would get together and mingle during the the evening, and then when it would, when it would get dark, they would start to move out to their agricultural fields. So we were kind of right in the middle of all that, and uh, yeah, this this buck that I ended up shooting with my muzzleloader came in with uh, another buck that I had seen the morning before from that same stand, which was also a, a really good deer. Um, and he looked even more impressive on camera because that's just cameras make everything look bigger. <laughs> but uh, I, was, I was lucky that I had some reserve in me and I, I, didn't, um, I didn't shoot that deer that first morning because I was, I was rewarded with a, a much bigger deer. And... Um, you know, I grew up brown, it's down, essentially, where, where my family's farm is in central Minnesota. Um, we've had it for 130 years, and I grew up, it was all about the meat. Um, you know, we'd go out, we'd shoot whatever we could. We were always very happy with it, and we would go back and we'd skin the deer and, and butcher them and celebrate. And uh, it was never about age class or antler size or any of that stuff. And it, it, honestly, um, until about the last year or two, I've kind of hit personally a, a different stage where, um, you know, like it's not that I need to shoot to try to shoot some big deer or big, big game animal to be happy, but it's just, it's just a lot easier to sit back and observe. Like I'm not, I hate to put it this way, but I'm not, I guess I'm not as trigger happy. Like. And I don't mean that in like a like a killer sort of way, but I mean it in like, you know, I used to just get so excited when I would have a chance at anything that was 
quote unquote decent that would come through that I'd be more than happy to shoot that animal and I'd be I'd be super thrilled. But now I'm just as thrilled sitting back watching some animals walk by because you get you get an almost different kind of thrill and sensation knowing that your only opportunity might have just escaped you, but you're allowing it to happen. So it kind of builds that anticipation for what could happen. And so it's just it's just all how you look at it, I guess. But um, if anything, it allows you to be out there longer and do what you love longer versus just uh, shooting the first thing that walks by. But anybody who wants to go out and shoot whatever they want, more power to them. I don't hold that against anybody. And we all do this because we love hunting. So everybody has their reasons. I had that. I've, I think I've had this so, the same experience as you in the last one or two years. Like for me, I grew up uh, hunting a lot of really segmented land. So this guy's got 20, this guy's got 20, you know, grandma's got 40 acres, just stuff Thank like that. You. So everybody, every 40 acre parcel had three or four people that hunted it when rifle season came. So it's like, man, you see a decent buck, you better start pulling. And so I, I used to get really excited, you know, shooting a 90, 100 inch, 120 inch deer. Like that was a real, real trophy. And now I find myself like I, I shot my biggest deer I've ever shot this year is 140 inches. And I was like, man, I really, uh, I just don't like, I've shot too many. I've shot too many 120 inch deer to be like, man, that's exciting. And like, I will get excited shooting a deer like that. But the satisfaction of walking up and looking at it every single day as it's sitting there on the wall being like, man, that was a a nice two-year-old or man that's a nice three-year-old and like i mean i don't know i i feel like i've went through that kind of cultural shift i feel like a lot of it's a you know educational commentary on quality deer management i've talked to the qdma and i don't know it's just really there's something fun and really challenging about passing a nice three and a half year old or a nice four and a half year old deer knowing that you might never get to shoot you might get not get a shot at a deer that big the rest of the year. My buddy did that this year. He passed 130 inch deer and that would have been one of the bigger deer he ever shot. And he was like, it's a three-year-old. So, I mean, it's highs and lows and give and take with it. But I think I'm going through that same transition as you right now. Cause now 120 inch deer just, it's not going to satisfy me. So now <laughs> I, I do need to backpedal just a little bit though, because, um, so I, I took that deer in Kansas and it was, it was a great deer. And then, um, I'm trying to think how everything rolled out after that. But, uh, well, I think I, I think I might've shot a deer. It's hard, it's hard for me to rack my brain. It's been kind of a crazy fall about how, how it exactly played out. But what I'm getting at is that lease that I got in Wisconsin, I did have, I knew there were some really big deer on there. We had them on camera and, um, my buddy who I got the place with shot one on a second sit. He shot a really great deer. It was his biggest deer he'd taken with a bow and we were only bow hunting it, which, um, I'm, I'm normally a rifle hunter. No matter where I hunt, I really like using firearms. I think the, the Chinese were, were pretty wise to invent gunpowder. <laughs> Very efficient. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like to know that when I shoot something, it's, there's not really much of a chance I'm going to lose it. Um, so anyways, I was bow hunting, but I was using a crossbow. So I gave myself a little bit of advantage and, uh, got down to, Oh, I think it was my 12th sit on the property. And I just couldn't, this is our first year on the property. I haven't even seen all of it with my own two eyes yet. We were trying to be super low impact because we got the lease kind of late. And so we were tiptoeing around and um, I didn't. I, I just was trying to make the best decisions I could about where to sit. Well, it wasn't until, until that twelfth sit that I realized where I needed to be because that was that was the spot. It was just incredibly littered with deer activity. And um, I got there that morning. And actually, before I before I got out there that morning, I sat in my house and I knew I was going into it, it was my twelfth sit. I really wanted to shoot a deer during the rut. And I was also kind of running out of time because I had some travels coming up for different hunts. And so I said, you know what? I know I know there's some deer out here that I'd really like to see that I've been hoping to see. But if a deer comes through this morning and it gets me excited, I'm going to shoot it. I don't care. I'm not going to sit there and count points or age it or anything like that. Like, if, if it gets me excited, I'm going to shoot it. 
And that's exactly what happened. I had a uh, probably a it was a it was a two and a half, maybe three and a half year old, but it was like that you know one twenties kind of buck. But he was all rutted out. His neck was big. He came through on a on a scent trail of a doe that had come through earlier that was actually bedded downwind of me all morning. And he came through, and I looked up, and I had been I've been sitting there for hours. It was I was four hours in diligently watching paying attention and i just had happened to pull my phone out and i i'm embarrassed to admit it but i was i, I may have been looking on instagram just giving myself a little break <laughs> seeing everybody else out there shooting these great deer you know and uh i shouldn't have done it because as soon as i pulled my phone out i i looked up after a few seconds and he was coming just on a mission down that scent trail and I had already had a window picked out, like I talked about earlier, visualizing everything. I had a window picked out. I said, okay, if a deer goes down that trail, that's the window I'm going to have to shoot. I need to make it count right there. Well, by the time I shoved my damn phone in my pocket and got my crossbow up, he had already passed that window. And so there was, I looked ahead of him, and I saw one other tiny window be my only other chance. The rest was brush. And it was like a – just I, I just went into autopilot. And it was all these things were going through my head in rapid speed like it happens. And I just instinctually, I, I bleeded. I stopped them in that window. It was only about oh, like a two-foot gap. And I just shot him immediately when he stopped. And I was so, so excited, man. Even though, um, you know, he wasn't some – I didn't sit there and, and try to see if his neck melted into his chest or – if he had a rotund belly or any of that, if I'd seen him on camera, there was no time for any of that. There was only time to live in the hunt. And so that's mm -hmm. what I did. So while I have hit that, that stage that you're talking about where I'm, I'm willing to be a little bit more selective and reserved, I just proved that I'm not completely out of that yet because I just like to, I like to hunt and I like to be a predator. Oh, no, I, I definitely understand. I think it's put best. John Dudley, uh, the guy that founded Knock on Archery, he said, uh, he's like, I don't I don't count points on deer. I count, uh, he's like, only deer I shoot are 14 points. They have to have four hooves for four points, and then excitement level has to be a 10. So I always <laughs> shoot 14 points. And I was like, that's hilarious. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for people. If they shoot a deer that they want, that they want to shoot, um, regardless of one and a half or six and a half it's what they want to shoot it gets them excited that's awesome i know for me I, I want to shoot a mature deer now i will shoot another two or three i know it's going to happen one of those situations is going to going to come by where a deer runs by i'm only going to see his rack and it's going to be uh put up or shut up so i'm not going to talk too heavily on it but that's the goal that would be the goal is you shoot a mature deer yeah i i, I feel you man and i'm excited to get back to that property next year when i actually know it um, and we can put some, some real strategy in, uh, we'll, we'll walk it, you know, this winter and early in the spring and, and just canvas the whole thing and figure out where all the activity has been going down and all that, go through that process. So that'll be a lot to look forward to next fall. But, uh, you want to talk about bittersweet while I was, I've been doing a lot of uh, gutless method for, for handling my big game animals. So, mm -hmm. Classically, I've always butchered them hanging up at home or whatever, but I've, I've gotten really proficient in the gutless method, so I like to quarter them and take everything off in the field when I can. And um, that's what I was doing with that deer. And while I was out there, uh, it ended up becoming really warm that day. It was beautiful. It ended up being about 40 degrees, so I was in my T-shirt, taking my time just out there by myself. And as I was finishing up that deer, I look up. I heard this crashing. And here comes this big 10 point that the, one of the deer that I've been wanting to see most of the season that we had on camera. And he just came right through there, right by the stand that I had been sitting in. Oh. And uh, I told the landowner about it. And he, he actually gave me permission to come back and try to shoot it with a rifle, even though um, we had only gotten bow permission or archery permission for this place. But uh, I just, for some reason... I, I just felt like I had to leave that one for the deer gods. I could have come back three days later whenever rifle season started. And, uh, I mean, that deer was on such a pattern at that point. I probably would have got him. But fast forwarding, um, 
about a week and a half, I got a text message and you're talking about, you know, hunting small properties and patchworks and all that. Um, this place is 400 acres, but 400 acres is not nearly enough to hold a deer mm-hmm. and raise a deer. And so week and a half after I saw him, I got a text message of a uh, picture of the neighbor kid. Oh. Um, he had tracked him in the snow and shot him uh, after somebody said they saw him and he immediately went out there and went after him and got him. So I was really happy for him, but, uh, you know, it just goes to show, um, you know, it's, they're wild animals and managing a deer herd is, is a tall order. So you really just got to put things in perspective. And, and as, as some old feller once told me when I was deer hunting on his place down in Kentucky, he just, even though he had a management program going on and he had invested a lot into it, he said, Josh, when you go out tonight, I just want you to shoot what makes you happy. And uh, that's that has stuck with me ever since that trip, and I, I say that to people. And for your listeners, a lot of them, um, some might be in the outdoor media, some might not be, but just uh, be warned that all this madness with social media and the, the availability um, or the the ability for people to be able to, to show their animals in, in semi real time and post pictures and all that. And even, even videos, just remember that you can do some amazing things with a camera. Um, if you saw that deer that I shot in Wisconsin, I had a lot of people text me like, Oh man, you know, that's a, it's a really big deer and whatnot. It really wasn't a big deer. I just took some good photos of it. So not everybody's out there shooting 140, 150 inch, whitetails um, a lot of them might look look like it and a lot of people are saying that they're shooting those deer but you put a tape to them and it, it takes a hell of a lot of antler to make 140 inches so that 140 inch that you shot that's a hell of a deer thank you man I, I really appreciate that i think that's so funny i see people all the time posting a a 15 inch wide eight point that's got seven or eight inch g2s and then three inch g4s like 135 i'm like dude no way like not even close you've never put tape on a deer in your life like I, my uncle has a 20 inch wide eight point 11 inch g2s and it, it gross scored like one like 134 and i was like you don't understand how big an eight point has to be to be 130 140 inches like that it, it's 150 inch 10 point just take the take the g4s off and it's crazy man social media is an interesting game in the in the world of hunting it is and uh you know so I guess a lesson to be learned from that is the guy who's who's super proud to throw out an exaggerated number about how big he thinks his deer is. Well, think about it this way. If you think that deer is, let's say, 140 inches, and you're telling people that because that's what you believe, but it, it, but it isn't that big of a deer, to me that just says it doesn't really freaking matter in the first place because mm-hmm. look, look how ex- happy and excited you are about that deer. And to you, you, you can throw a number on it if you want, but it's just a big damn deer. It's a deer that made you happy. It's a deer that you're proud to show people. So why don't we just leave it at that? Right. I mean, you know? seriously, I've shot, I shot a deer last year. I promise wouldn't go 80 inches, but it was a, it was a four, four and a half or a five and a half year old seven point. That was just, Oh my God, it looked like I had a tire for a neck. He looked like a, like a box car and I shot him and I walked up to him. I was like, Oh my God, this thing, this thing is just trash. But I was like, that was fun as hell. Like I really enjoyed that. And so I I walked him around with pride and showed people and like, that's not a big deer. I'm like, dude, it it was fun to shoot though. Like I really, really enjoyed it. And that's uh, ultimately that's what it's all about. It's not about inches and and shooting big deer, harvest immature. I mean, everyone just got into it because I love shooting deer and being in the outdoors and the camaraderie around it. So, it's that's a, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. But it it is fun to quantify, uh, you know, success in, in the inches sometimes in in a healthy manner. No, I, I was getting a little bit little bit righteous there. I, I agree, man. And uh, if anything, I mean, it's 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 intriguing to me because of what we just talked about. Like it takes a lot for a, for a whitetail or a mule deer 
or any animal with, with horns or antlers, it takes a lot for them to put on inches. So when I talk about a number or a score related to a deer that I shot, um, typically I only do it amongst friends who I'm very comfortable with. And mm -hmm. like, I know we're on the same page. So I don't even have to worry about like, I don't have to worry about coming across the wrong way. Like I'm trying to throw out a number and I don't have to worry about um, them and them thinking of it in that way. So otherwise I just won't even go there. But when I'm talking to, to folks who I am comfortable with, it's just, it's just like anything. It's a, it's an intriguing thing to throw out. You know, it's just as intriguing to say that, you know, the deer I shot in Kansas was like 225 pounds, um, in, in September in 90 degree weather. Like to me, that's, that's just one of those, one of those, uh, details of the hunt that you can share that, that adds something to it. Um, and Hey, for the dudes who are out there who are all about the numbers, that's all good too. I mean, if that's what makes you happy, but the only thing that I just like to, especially, um, you know, having a voice on the media side, I just like to be careful because the last thing I like to see is folks to have, uh, especially newer hunters, to have unrealistic expectations and to be going out there, setting themselves up for failure because they're trying to attain something that is, is such a small percentage. Like, like that 140-inch deer, I mean, a lot of things got to come together for the quote unquote average Joe to connect with a deer like that. And if you get it in your head that that's what you need to be happy because that's the influence you're seeing from all this external media bombardment, I think that's poisonous. Um, so I just like to be careful about it. Uh, just cause you don't know, you don't know what kind of people you're talking to when you just talk, when you cast stuff out there in the, like the social world and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it breeds this culture of like, you know, you got 12-year-old kids posting in Facebook groups, age and score. It's like, dude, you should just say you harvested a deer. No one oh, gives a frick. Yeah. And then yeah. you got you got guys in there that are like two and a half, and then some people are saying six and a half. The dude says 80 inches. The next guy says 120. I'm like, what you're getting here is a bunch of information that means jack. No <laughs> one no one in here knows anything because I could hold my deer out, and, I, and all of a sudden I got a 180-inch deer, you know? Like... Like you were saying, the the photography skills and you know people standing eight feet back from the deer, holding it up with a <laughs> stick, like that crap. You see that all the time. I'm just like, if you're happy with it, you're happy with it. So it's really interesting how that's changed because it used to be. I remember when I first started hunting, it, I had to print out the the picture that my mom took on her three dollar camera and had to go to Walmart and print it out and show people the deer I killed because you couldn't even like I didn't even have a cell phone. So now it's like everything you kill, people are like, oh, it's not big enough to post. I'm like, dude, who gives a frick? It's it's yeah, kind of crazy how far it's gone. It is, man. It it is it is it is definitely gone gone way too far in several directions. Um and uh this is probably a fire I shouldn't light right now, but maybe I'll just I'll just tease it and um you know, maybe you can talk to somebody else about it or we can talk again sometime. But I also feel the same way right now, and I know this is going to light a fire under a bunch of people, but with, with the public land thing, um, you know, I'm, I'm really getting exhausted on the social side. With that being the first question somebody asks when somebody posts one of their success shots. Oh, yeah. Puts it on public land as if, as if it negates it if it wasn't. Like that, that's just as bad as asking what did it score? And if it doesn't meet some minimum, then it's negated. I think that's, I think that's horseshit. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of great things that occur on private land. And frankly, um, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have any of the wildlife populations that we have like we do now, which is for most species is the heyday. If it were not for the efforts a public or private landowners, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, or if it's just a byproduct of them raising crops or whatever it is for profit, there are so many different things that go on that are necessary to manage our, our wildlife populations nationwide on private land that I feel like that's not getting enough recognition right now. Now, that is not me putting down public land or public land hunters or the difficulty of hunting public land or any of that stuff. All I'm saying is, 
um, it shouldn't be the first question you ask somebody when they're proud of something that they just successfully harvested. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that I think needs to just be tamed down a little bit. And we need to remember that we're all one community. It doesn't matter how big your deer is, where you shot it. If there's a smile on your face and you did it the right way and, and uh, it makes you happy and all that, let's, yeah. let's, let's just have that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally for it. I think the funny thing now is, so I lived, I grew up in Oklahoma uh, for like 22 years and moved down to Austin, Texas in a couple, what was it, eight or nine months ago? It's so funny that like I this eight hour difference has been like the d- biggest deer culture shock of my life because now, now the question isn't public or private or bow or rifle, it's, did you get that in a high fence? It's like, <laughs> people post these 300 inch deer with their crossbow, I'm like, dude, this I can't stand this, and people are like, "Nice, how much was that?" And they'll they'll send a price range, one twenty to one fifty is three thousand, and they'll, I'm like, "Dude, this is not hunting," and I I just I go back and forth with people in groups like that, but it's so funny to like in Oklahoma, it's like shoot that on your on your grandpa's land with that big winter wheat field, you couldn't do that in public, and then and then down here it's like couldn't do that if it wasn't in a high fence, and it's just it's insane, and that's why you got to go back to the argument of just. If you're happy with it, you do it. You know, if you want to hunt on a high fence, you want to hunt with a rifle, want to hunt on public, I don't care. Actually, I do care slightly on the high fence. That's not hunting, but uh, <laughs> that's my opinion on that. I was just gonna say, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on all that, except uh, it's no, it's not. It's not hunting. Um, it's something. It is. It is an activity that involves something that resembles hunting and taking an animal which is actually technically like livestock um it's an experience there's no doubt about that and um for me that's a whole nother part of my personal philosophy is uh a long time ago i decided to when i've had a lot of more opportunities open up to me to be able to do some different things um i'm all about experiencing new stuff especially when it comes to hunting and I try to weigh every one of those experiences in its own right. So it's not all apples to apples. Um, and it, fences are kind of another example of that. Uh, I was actually thinking about doing an article on on fences uh, a number of years ago. I never got around to it. I was it was a little bit cliche, but I was going to call the article "Behind the Fence," and I was going to talk about the difference between deer hunting cultures, like you just mentioned, and regionality and deer farms versus high fence um, ranches in Texas. And like, there's so many different variables with the high fence stuff. Um, and like Texas was, was really an eye opener for me the first time I went down there because it's for them, it's, it's just a wildlife management technique. Um, there's a big difference between a, a genetic breeding facility or where they're, where they're breeding livestock bucks with ear tags and um, something that's managed by Texas Parks and Wildlife, where they're actually using it to control and manage a, a wildlife population. Because I can tell you, those deer that are in those types of places, they are very freaking wild, if not more cagey than other deer. It, it all comes down to hunting pressure. So while I was down there for the first time hunting whitetails in Texas, we were hunting a combination of free range, low fence, quote unquote, and high fence which was like uh i think that piece was like five thousand acres managed by parks and wildlife um the permits are given out on a based on their surveys that they do and stuff but there were no genetic breeding or anything like that going on in there it's just that the population was contained and i hunted both properties while i was down there the low fence and the high fence and the deer that were in that high fence were so much more wired and high strung than the deer on the low fence property and it had nothing to do with the fence it had to do with pressure um those deer i believe even in those larger high fence properties um you know some of those are big enough where if you did own it it would be big enough to manage a deer herd and and actually like keep them in that area and in their home range and even if they decided to go roam during the rut and stuff like they're big enough where 
a whitetail wouldn't even naturally travel farther than that. But at the same time, I think some of those places, because they're in that environment, they have less of an area to learn like the back of their hand. So they know when anything is off. Um, so like if anything is out of place because they're so conditioned to different patterns and stuff, and especially with like, you know, states like Texas or Oklahoma where protein feeders are the norm, um, those deer are totally in tune to their surroundings because they can't just roam anywhere. They might be able to roam miles. They might be able to roam three miles, but they might not be able to roam 15 miles. You know what I'm saying? So I think more than anything, it, it comes down to their their knowledge and their blueprint of the area that they live in and the amount of pressure that's on them. And the deer that I witnessed there on the low fence area were um, way easier to kill than the deer that were in that high fence operation. Now, that's just anecdotal. That's just one experience for me. That's not, I'm not trying to say that that's how it is across the board, but I, I found that to be really interesting. And so I ended up shooting my deer in that high fence place. It was a sweet hunt. I was really excited. It was a whole lot of fun, um, beautiful, kind of iconic-looking Texas whitetail. But I weighed that experience in its own right. Is that the same as me going to my family's farm in central Minnesota and, and shooting a 120-incher with my slug gun that I would be super thrilled about? No, it's not the same. They're two different experiences, but they're both good experiences to me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... I think people really, really like to try to compare things that, that are just not even in the same, in the same realm. And so again, that just kind of comes down to, to each his own. Um, but when you're talking about the other high fences where, where they are small enclosures and they're, and they're farming deer, like you're talking about, um, at this point, I don't really see Based on what I know, I don't see anything good coming from them. And with the impending doom of CWD, I think we need everything in our power to reduce our chances of causing more of a catastrophe than, than is already there. Because that's all we can do at this point. And if we don't, that's really, uh, that's negligence. Yeah. No, I agree. Well, Josh, so where could people find hunt stand besides the app store google play store where can we connect with you guys on social media uh get the app all that good stuff yeah so on instagram uh you can find us at hunt stand um same thing with with facebook you can find us at hunt stand uh youtube same way uh we're we're fortunate that all the all those urls were were still available when we snapped them up so you can just find us and any of the major platforms, just at HuntStand, um, Google Play, the App Store uh, for Android or iOS devices. And, of course, HuntStand.com is a great place to go to get information about the app. If you're still unsure about whether you want to use it, we've got all the information there. that will tell you about the features. it will tell you about the pro upgrade. And then on the media side, it's HuntStandMedia.com. So there you're going to find articles and videos and uh some of the hunts that I've referenced, you'll find um, some pretty cool videos on there from those experiences. And we're continuing to add to it every day. I actually just posted a, a new um, Sand Hills, Nebraska Sand Hills mule deer hunt today. So if you guys want to go check that out, I'd appreciate it. And if you want to ask me any questions or hit me up on Instagram, I'm at uh, the hunger official. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.